Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Witches Whiskey and Wit. We are back. We had some we had some issues. You're going to hear me typing uh, for a second uh, as we kind of work through there. One of the problems with like doing shit like is if something goes wrong, everybody will notice, and that's where we are. Something fucked up. I fucked up, and we had a problem, and the live stream died, and people were listening on the live stream, and we're very sad. And uh, yeah, so we're so we're like we're working on these things and trying to fix them, like while I'm talking to you. So yeah, there we go. So that's that's why I sound really discombobulated. That's why things are going like they are. But it'll be fun here in a minute because we have witches. This is Witches, Whiskey, and Wit. Every week, I promise you, at least two of the three W's. You know, I'm a witch, so I'm usually here. That's one. I'm usually drinking whiskey, so there's that. And then every great once in a while, I'm kind of witty. It depends. Like, the booze does not help, but it's fun. And, you know, that's where we're at. My guest tonight is Thorn Mooney. She's, like, my favorite guest in the entire world and it's really embarrassing to have fucked up with her on the show but i do like talking to her so it's like i get extra bonus talking time with thorn so it's not as bad as it might otherwise be the, the really terrible thing about fucking up live is like laura tempest zakroff is listening to us and tara love mcguire and like Christopher Orpello, and I'm like all a flutter. <laughs> They're all people that was like, and you know, it's just, it's really cool. Hi, so welcome back again, Thorn Moody. Yay! Yay! Yeah, so yeah, so, so that happened. We're working on it. We talked about some stuff earlier uh, for people who were listening to the live stream. We're not going to repeat all of it, uh, obviously, because that would be a waste of time. So we're going to get into a kind of a discussion. Thorne and I are giant history nerds when it comes to witchcraft and Wicca. Like, you know, I thought I had a good pagan library until Thorne looked at it and she laughed at me. And it's like, well, this isn't very impressive. <laughs> I and laughed. You laughed internally. It, you know, still, still hurts me. It was me, fine. You know? Your library is fine. Uh-huh. Thank you. You're very kind. Uh, but one of the things as being giant history nerds, we we talk a lot about kind of trends in witchcraft. And when I was growing up in the 90s, in the early aughts, I'm a little older than you, but you embraced witchcraft before I did. So we're kind of on parallel tracks. Wicca was the shit. That was the big thing, right? And like even books on general paganism were about Wicca. And it feels like today people use the term witchcraft. They really are kind of shying away from Wicca. I don't think it's as bad as it was five years ago, but the trend is well, not to use that term anymore, right? Yeah. Well, I think people aren't necessarily mean about it anymore. And I think a lot of it is because we've got so many wonderful writers now who are writing about non-Wiccan witchcraft. I think one of the reasons why people were... I mean, even angry about that interchange between Wicca and witchcraft is because it erases so many other kinds of witches. 
And at the time, I mean, like you said, in the 90s and into the early 2000s, even the books that purport to not be about Wicca are still about Wicca. Let's be real. Like if you've got eight Sabbaths and you're doing shit in a circle with your athame and your chalice, like it's Wicca, okay? <laughs> um, but now people who are interested in other things, they can go to Barnes & Noble and they can buy books right on the spot that aren't Wiccan. And that wasn't true even five years ago, ten years ago. You know, we've seen so much stuff come out now that's really great. So those people have their own communities that are now more mainstream. It's easier. Um, they're more accessible. So I think that you're still seeing that trend of people moving away from Wicca. And there have always been people outside of Wicca. Um, now it's just easier to be outside of Wicca. I mean, it feels in some ways like the idea of traditional witchcraft came out of nowhere maybe six or seven years ago. But I'm looking back over my book collection and I mean, there were bits and pieces of it. I mean, I remember the term in the '90s, crafters. You know, we're we're old crafters. We predate Gerald Gardner. You know, that kind of thing. I mean, I think Nigel Jackson. There was all those Capel Bond books. It was always there, oh, yeah. but it was sort of hard to get a hold of. It always felt like it was kind of percolating under the surface a little bit. And you uh, know, looking for people who were influ- influenced by Cochrane, that was pretty hard for for many decades. I think part of it, too, though, Jason, was that people didn't necessarily know what they were looking at in those books. Let me tell you a tale. (laughs) So I recently, I don't know why, but I reread To Ride a Silver Broomstick by Silver Ravenwolf. Um, I hadn't read it in a really long time, and I kind of thought, what the hell? Sometimes they get nostalgic. Um, For those of you who haven't heard me gush on about this at some point in the last few years, this is one of my very first books. Um, And Silver Ravenwolf does not describe herself as Wiccan in that book. She talks about her lineage. She's got a whole section where she talks about what a stang is and her stang and getting her magic pitchfork from her uncle and how it lives in the barn. And there is shit in that book that she is very adamant is not Wiccan. And if you look at the back of the book, um, and I don't know what the new editions are looking like, but I've got one, you know, I've got one of the early printings. She describes what she does as witchcraft. She doesn't call it Wicca. She comes out and says that she doesn't like being called Wiccan. She says it reminds her of Wicker furniture. <laughs> um, and then she goes on a really weird tirade about the Wicker man and how awful it is, which clearly she's wrong about. <laughs> um, but for those of us who were primed reading that book, especially as young people, were primed to see, oh, it's Wicca. It's all Wicca. Witchcraft is Wicca, blah, 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 blah. I don't. I have no memory of that passage about these other kinds of tools or these other kinds of rituals. But there they are. They're in Silver Ravenwolf. And she That's... gets held up even today as like the queen of Wicca and the fluffiest, softest of white-lighting Wiccans. But that shit is not all Wicca. That's so crazy because, I mean, I've like flipped through that book recently, but I don't remember that. But I also remember knowing what a stang was in 1995. I assume maybe yeah, I just and, absorbed that and then forgot where it came from. That's yeah, and she talks yeah. an awful lot about hereditary craft. She never really tells you what that is, at least not on To Ride a Silver Broomstick. Um, but she goes on and on about family traditions and the passage of magical abilities through family lines. There's all kinds of things in there that now, I think, if people were to read her books, they'd go, oh, okay, yeah, she's She's over here in this this other camp. But because of when she was publishing, 
I think she gets put into a different box altogether. It's fascinating. It makes me want to go back and reread some of these books. Um, my next rereading is going to be Scott Cunningham. I don't think he's going to hold up as well. <laughs> oh, my God. We talked about that the other day. Wicca, a guide for the solitary practitioner, does not hold up well at all. It, oh, like, my God. It really does how bad that book is in some places. Uh, if this book came out today, and I, like, I feel like I need to say this, okay? Um, this is not me trying to disrespect my elders. Like, I know how much I owe Scott Cunningham, okay? But if Guide for the Solitary Practitioner came out today, Twitter would be outraged because the first chapter is about how Wicca is essentially shamanism. Like, he'd be called a racist. He would be canceled. <laughs> like you're, And then you get on TikTok, and they're all just like, you know, here, this is the only book you need. And I'm just like, hi, consistency, please. I almost, thought you said, I almost thought you said shamanism for a second. I was, like, really confused. I started to. <laughs> <laughs> I know how it's pronounced. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I'm writing. I just. Yeah, I just finished writing a Horn God Bye. book, and I'm like looking through these books for references to the Horn God, and I think he spends like a paragraph on Old Hornhead, and I'm like, how how can you write a book about Wicca or witchcraft and only write about the Horn God for a fucking paragraph? I mean, that's well, most, you know, that's most the books thing. on on most books on Wicca hardly touch on gods at all, even today. Sure. Um, I'm reading. So one of the things that I do on my Patreon is I have, like, critical reading clubs. Um, I've got one for academic titles, and then I've got another one that's kind of geared more towards beginners. And we're reading – I'm going to mispronounce her name. I'm so sorry. I don't know if it's a hard T or a TH. Taya Sabin's Wicca for Beginners, which came out in mm-hmm. 2006, maybe. Um, and I think that this is still one of the better – beginner books out there, like straight 101 Wicca-specific books. But even so, like, it's, there's a later chapter in the book about deities. It's super short. It's not very comprehensive. And, yeah, it's a beginner's book, but it's the beginner's book to a re- religion, right? <laughs> like, you'd think that would be one of the first things that you talked about in one of the longer chapters, but that's almost never true. A lot of times deities don't get mentioned at all. And if they do get mentioned, it's always kind of in passing, like, oh, just pick some who you kind of like from whatever pantheon, and that's fine. Uh, there's very little conversation well, about that, gods who that, might specific to Wicca. That's like the Ray Buckland. Like, if you read Buckland's Big Blue Book, and he's like, you can choose whatever god that you want. And if they say something else, it doesn't matter because it's, you know, like everything's the same. And in your head, you can worship oh, yeah. something else. And I'm like, that's gross. Like, they're the horned god I, figure at the, at the center at, of this, obviously with a goddess. But, you know, the horned god's a big fucking deal. It just makes me sad and angry sometimes. Well... I think a lot of that is going to be generational, too. I mean, I see that at festivals, and I see that in other communities. Um, the concept, uh, you know, we, we toss around, like, hard versus soft polytheism. For, for, like, the last 10 years, those were, like, really hot terms. Now you don't see them so much. You see devotional polytheism. And, again, like, these are relatively new categories. I mean, obviously, the ideas have been around for a long time but their popularity and their accessibility on the internet is relatively recent. And I think more and more we're inclining towards 
true polytheism, whereas Ray Buckland wasn't a polytheist the way we're polytheists. Gardner certainly wasn't. Valiente wasn't. Like our, you can read a lot of those early texts, and they're very heavily influenced by, by Jung and by Eliade and by a lot of these other writers. Uh, many of them are scholarly writers of one stripe or another, and they're essentially atheistic or archetypist or something, but they're not devotional polytheists. So our lens is relatively new, and I like our lens better, but it's relatively new. Yeah, I mean, I became a Wiccan witch because I was attracted first to kind of the idea of goddess or goddesses, really. And then because I had felt Christian baggage with the horn god for a couple of years. And to me, like the religious part of it was always kind of the centerpiece, not the magic, not the casting circles are called quarters and stuff like that or divination but it was religion really meant something to me and then people you know and remember people used to call it the old religion i mean you don't see that in oh, yeah. so much anymore but in the 90s you know witchcraft was the old religion which it really wasn't but you know the whole religious aspect of all this is getting downplayed more and more so i think that generally speaking um you know, kind of putting on my my scholar hat here for a second. Um, there have been a lot of there's been a lot written in the last 20 years or so about a general decline in religious literacy in our communities, in the sense that like we have very specific ideas about what a religion is, and if things don't match up to that idea, we assume it must not be religious. And in the United States and in most of Europe, those ideas are. Christian, but particularly a kind of Protestant Christianity. So like something doesn't strike us as being religious unless it's about God or unless it has lots of tools or ministers or like rites of passage being performed in public or whatever. We think religion has to be all about making people moral or it has to make a statement about what happens when you die. Like these are our parameters for defining a religion. But that's not how scholars talk about religion, and that's not how scholars classify religion. Like, these are kind of broad categories. But this idea that witchcraft is fundamentally, is fundamentally not a religion, like, that says something about our understanding of religion, not something objectively true about witchcraft. Um, so for me, like... My interest in Wicca was a lot like yours. I came from a, you know, as secular a household as I think is possible in the United States, because even secularism has that Protestantism kind of humming in the background to the point where we can't even hear it, you know, like opium in the air and fillery. Right. <laughs> um, how many fillery references can I work into the show? Um, do it. Yeah, like for me, I read um, Zilpha Keatley Snyder's The Egypt Game when I was in the seventh grade, and I was really immediately obsessed with this idea that you could worship old gods. Like these kids, for those of you who haven't read The Egypt Game, it's this like Newbery award-winning book that's pretty racist now, okay, but it was cla- it was a classic, and we had to read it in school, and it's about these kids who essentially like break into this old man's yard behind an antique shop, and they find like a plaster bust of Nefertiti and some other crap. And they basically just start worshiping it and they start this cult and it's great. It changed my life. <laughs> well, that's um, how Wicked started. Well, yeah. And when I, when I want to bother my OTO friends, I refer to it as the Egypt game. <laughs> <laughs> Cause I'm a troll. <laughs> um, uh-huh. But I read that as a kid and 
as somebody who grew up with no exposure to gods at all, but with plenty of exposure to fantasy and mythology and folk tales, you know, like a lot of children, I was into that stuff. Uh, the idea that it could be meaningful, life-changing, like was huge for me. So Wicca just fit really neatly into that. So yeah, I wanted I wanted God shit too. But I think well, I think we were unusual. Well, I think I'm always surprised. Like re- religion is a bad word now, and growing yeah. up in the '90s and the early aughts, it was like. You know, we want a place at the religious table. We want to be a part of the religious roundtable and discussions and stuff. And now to use the word religion in any way with witchcraft just kind of seems taboo. You'll see people online, you know, I worship Hecate, I worship Hecate, I worship Hecate, I am not religious. And I'm thinking to myself, this goddess is the centerpiece of your life, your, you know, your life revolves around those devotions. To me, that would be religious, but people are, for whatever reason, just kind of seem scared of that word these days. Well, that's that's not that's not witchcraft specific. That's particularly an American thing too. Um, there's a scholar out there named Robert Fuller who has got he's got a whole book out called um, Spiritual but Not Religious. It's it's a it's an old book. I read it as an undergrad. Um, it was probably in. I don't know when that was years ago, Um, but the whole book is about this trend in the United States to shy away from the word religion because in our minds, religion, um, regardless of what religious group we're talking about or what community we're talking about, religion equals dogma, equals boundaries, equals loss of freedom, equals con artists, right? I mean, I, I did my master's thesis on an evangelical church, and guess what? They didn't like being called religious either. They were all spiritual, or they were God-led, or they were something. So witches are not special in this. Everybody's insisting that they're not practicing religion anymore. And again, I think a lot of that is generational, um, and I think it's a mistake, like, as a witch. And I think that because, not because um, we all don't have the right to self-identify however we want, we do, but I think a lot of people are not old enough to remember why it was so important that we get the moniker of religion I mean, we still had children being thrown out of school for wearing pentagrams in the 90s. You know what I mean? Like, I was in high school when the Columbine shooting happened. Um, I mean, how old were you when the satanic panic hit, right? Like, we're from an era where being a witch, being a Wiccan, being any kind of magician could get you thrown out of school, could get you put in jail. I mean, and I'm not saying that these things were ubiquitous, okay? Um, I, I was spared. I really, like my, I've always been pretty out about who I am. I've always had that freedom. But a lot of people don't. All, all those stories about people getting their kids taken from them or losing jobs, that stuff really happened to people in the 80s and 90s and even into the early 2000s. And us being called a religion, whether or not it's true, it prevents us being persecuted by the government. So even if you think you're not practicing a religion, maybe don't let the government know. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, let's I'm let always, people think the religion because it makes us like Yeah, I'm always surprised when I look backwards on my life and how cavalier I was, like about by 1994 about being a Wiccan and a witch. You know that it was just mm-hmm. like such a power thing to say that to my 
friends in college and shit. And the West Memphis Three thing is from 1993. Yes. We often think about the Satanic Panic as this, you know, relic of the early 80s. But it really, like, deep into the 90s. When did Damien Eccles get out of jail? Just because it was relatively recently. Yes. So it's not just about, you know, wanting to sit at the table. It's about not wanting to be in jail. People were still in jail in like 2010 because of the daycare shit that wasn't true at all. But satanic panic. Yes. Yeah, it was a huge deal. I mean, so like as as a witch, okay, as a practitioner of witchcraft, I am completely on board with the idea that witchcraft is different. I don't like the idea of being just another religion either. That makes me uncomfortable. I do think we're up to something that's different, right, and that's its own show all on its own. But for the sake of outsiders, yeah, I want them to think I'm practicing a religion. It's just safer. And somebody who is 15 or who's just now getting involved in witchcraft who didn't read the shit that was coming out in the 80s and 90s, they wouldn't necessarily know about this stuff. But it was very real for people. It's not just about headstone markers, you know, and like prayers before town halls. That's not what it's about. So we're talking a little bit before about, you know, institutional religions and one of the things that comes up a lot is institutional paganism. People want pagan temples and legal pagan clergy. Um, what are your thoughts on kind of these ideas of universal pagan institutions? I, I empathize with people who want them. Um, I do not want them. Um, in my particular brand of paganism, which is, Gardnerian Wicca does not require those things. Um, those things do not have a place. I mean, if if the whole premise of training and working as a witch is that I can communicate with my gods directly, then I necessarily don't need things like ministers or paid clergy, etc. Like, it's my responsibility to go do that by myself. Now, that said, we still have people who die and who get married and who have babies and have various other kinds of traumas that we want socially acknowledged in big ways. I think that's part of being human. And I think that kind of falls into this category of religion. So we want to jam all that stuff into our, our religious traditions to make sense of them. And I think that makes a lot of sense culturally. Um, I don't know. I think a lot of those things aren't important to me personally. I'm not the boss of the movement, so I don't get to decide. Um, I think we're too different to have established institutions like that. Um, I don't, I don't know what that looks like for all of us just because I can't imagine some of these things I can't even imagine wanting. Um, Like I don't understand the impulse to have, have a wedding and structure it after a Christian wedding, but then give it pagan trappings and say that it's, pagan like to me it's still essentially christian but then like why would you ask me that i'm the last person who needs to be giving anybody advice about their weddings i went to a courthouse you know um, i know I cert- like ari and yeah. i are still angry we weren't invited to the wedding i mean nobody was invited like, to the wedding <laughs> i know but it's ari and jason it's different oh we could get married yeah. again and you could watch or sure oh my god we could hire you guys as clergy 
to wet us somewhere. If we ever get to the UK together, we can do it. Oh my God! Well, what if we flight. came to California? Yeah. I mean, why not? Sure. We've got like, I, you know, how many fucking like plane vouchers I have that I have to use in the next year? Where am I gonna go, Jason? <laughs> Everything's closed. The virus is just gonna go away, Thorne. One day we'll wake up and it'll be magically gone. <laughs> Well, oh, you know, God. we'll have that. <laughs> I can uh, just take okay. three separate trips to to California. Sure. You're always welcome here. You love to I wear a mask. Be... <laughs> I was telling Matt, my husband, yeah. that I was telling him about going to the beach with you guys and you trying to lead me down that sheer rock face and me getting on my hands and knees and weeping like a baby because I'm afraid of heights. And Matt thought that was awesome. He's like, I want to be on a cliff by the ocean. That would be great. You can stay up there. So, so I think you would find a lot of fun in me. We went back to that spot last week, first time uh, since all this has happened. And that trail is like closed because the bottom of the uh, the walkway has been washed away. It's a mess. It's all gone. And to get back up or to get down it, you have to like climb a rope now. Oh, my God. No. Which uh-uh. Mar and I did because we're badasses. Yeah. Oh, not Same me. I, I, not. <laughs> I know. It surprises me, too, because you're like, you know, sitting a deer blind with a bow and arrow waiting to, you know, shoot a deer. But, you know, walking to the beach was a problem. Though I'm also <laughs> I'm, very scared of heights. I'm very, you know, so I'm I get it. I get it. Desperate. Yeah. It's so it's, it's a phobia. It's like uncontrollable and completely irrational. I've never had a bad experience with heights. Like I just powering Matt and I's like our second date. He took me to Boone, North Carolina, which is in the mountains. And you'd think that that would be fine. Right. <laughs> Wrong. No. Because the, the highway the roads to get to these places are twisty and high and scary and there aren't always railings. And Matt, like I told him I was afraid of heights because he was always like, well, let's go hiking. And I love hiking, but I have to be careful when I hike because I like, I, I know this about myself. I can't just be on a mountain. <laughs> like I will lose like my cognitive functioning. <laughs> and so we're in the car and it gets scary. And I start like having a panic attack. Jason, I throw up. Like I'm, I'm terrible. I like stop being a human being, and I just have things spewing from me. Okay, while well, I'm like crying, and he's mis- like horrified and mystified, and I'm just like, I told you I was afraid of heights, and he was just like, I wasn't expecting this. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really bad. I mean, you've seen me. <laughs> and yet, you know, he married you anyways. It's all good. You know, we all, we all have our things. Whether it's heights or spiders. It it evens out. It evens out. It is. Yeah. Now, like, that said, I can be persuaded to do almost anything. Like, I'm terrified of heights, but I've done a lot of shit, you know. I mean, I regret it later, and I'll cry, and I'll throw up while I'm doing it, but I'll do it. <laughs> no. I I went to this. I, so I went to this really strange school growing up. This is part of the reason I'm like this. Like I went to this teeny tiny like school with like 16 kids and they believed in character building and it was a private school. So they could pretty much just like legally abuse children and it was fine. 
<laughs> and they used to take us on these bonding trips or um, like mountain skills trips. And they would literally like put us in a bus and drive us into the wilds of like Virginia or the Shenandoah or whatever the fuck. And we would have to do all kinds of weird, like dangerous trust building shit. I've been rappelling and caving and I've fallen off of like rock faces and I've had other kids like drop me. They used to like leave us in the woods and give us compasses and like we'd have to be back by the evening and we learned orienteering. I learned all kinds of bullshit like prepper skills because I went to school. Yes. (laughs) So I'm really good with the compass. And I know how to belay somebody. But, uh... I thought my Boy Scout—I thought my Boy Scout skills like made me ready for all kinds of things. Like this seems much worse than anything I had to do as a Boy Scout. They never dropped me off in the woods alone with a compass. It, yeah, it was, it was pretty ridiculous. I fondly refer to it as Lord of the Flies Prep Academy with my therapist. <laughs> um, yeah. So, in conclusion, I'm terrified of heights, but I've done a lot of shit. Somebody married me. <laughs> you weren't invited. I know. We're That's still not over story. it. Sorry, like, Ask why wouldn't you have? Them. Why wouldn't you invite people? How do you not? How do you like get shit if you don't invite people to the wedding? We didn't get a lot of shit. We got cash. Um, yeah. We ended up. What did we end up doing with it? We ended up paying off Matt's car. We did something boring with it, like something boring and very adult. I think I just remember a message like, oh, by the way, I got married. I think that's all I got. (laughs) That's all everybody got. Yeah. I think my father was relieved, though. He didn't pay for anything. You know, he didn't have to pay for a wedding. My, My siblings had big weddings. But not me. Setting the bar low. Ever since my father like my father's like, oh my god, you're gonna marry Ari? Here's some money. You enjoy <laughs> that shit. I'm so proud. One of my boys is getting married to somebody. Aww. Thank God, I don't have to worry about you anymore. Ari will take care of you for the rest of your life, <laughs> which is true, as we all know. So we we are near uh, the Fourth of July as we record this. It's July second. And, you know, I'm not feeling particularly patriotic these days. It's difficult to feel that way. Uh, America is full of imbeciles, especially in the middle of coronavirus. But I thought I would talk a little bit about American occultists and witches, because it always feels like we sort of have an inferiority complex. When people ask, you know, who are the most influential witches of all time, it always goes back to Britain. Right. I mean, I always think of Gerald Gardner. I think Margaret Murray is underappreciated, even though she did not self-identify as a witch, but her writings were really influential. Robert Graves is another one, obviously. Doreen Valiente. You know, it always goes back to, to England. So I thought it might be fun to talk about American occultists and witches for a little bit and to let us say things that may not be necessarily popular or might get us into trouble later because it's fun that way. Uh, So I'm wondering, who do you think is the most important American occultist of all time? That means they did not have to self-identify as a witch, but they practice magic or something like that. Um, Let me point 
I'm, I want to cheat and I want to, I want to point to a couple of things that I think will make some, I mean, I think some people will nod along and be like, yes, absolutely. And I think other people will feel uncomfortable. Um, I think we have to talk about, um, well, we're, we're gardenarians. I think we have to talk about Phoenix and Theos. We do. Yeah. Um, I think they're really critical and these are folks who, you know, they're, they're well-known names. Well, they should be. They're maybe less well known than I think. I think they are sometimes. I don't um, think they're, they're well very known well known at all. I, uh, I think yes, that it's I, only in the Gardnerian community that these names are known. Well, and I don't even know that it's how extensive it is within the Gardnerian community, just because the Gardnerian community, of course, is, I mean, is divided too. Um, but I, I think a lot of the material that um, people don't realize it comes from them. So I think we have to talk about them. So there's my first choices. Uh, I think that Ed Fitch is critical. Um, and I think that because his work is everywhere. He's hardly ever cited, but the Pagan Way material, which wasn't all Ed Fitch, okay, but Ed Fitch had Grimoire of Shadows, and he had a lot of stuff that was published and had his name attached to it. Um, I see that stuff at Pagan festivals all the time, and he's almost never cited. People don't seem to know who he is increasingly, but the reason why public paganism looks so much like Wicca is largely because of Ed Fitch. Um, so we have to talk about him. Um, and this is kind of like maybe the uncomfortable bits. I think we have to look at The Craft, the movie, 1996, um, Balk, Rachel True, um, those folks who they're not, well, I guess with the exception of Balk and I don't know that Rachel True actually identifies as a witch, but I know she's, I know that she's a tarot reader. Um, she does, and she follows a lot of us on Twitter now. She follows me. Like, I don't know if she follows you yet, but she follows me. I don't. I, I don't probably, think she follows me. I don't think I'm cool that I'm that cool yet. But um, I think it's because it of Matt Orange. Yeah. It is amazing to me how much of what gets popularly circulated about witchcraft is from the craft, and it might originally be sourced from other things. We know that. You know, when they were making the movie, they had, um, you know, they had a witch there to kind of point them in the right direction, um, or at least deliberately in the wrong direction at times. But people <laughs> aren't citing past that. They're still citing the craft, even if they don't know it. So when you see people talking about, oh, what element are you? Oh, we need four people to cast a circle. And you'll hear the, the invocations from that movie, too. And people don't realize that that's where they're getting them from. Um, there are parts of that movie so, that though are like brilliant and beautiful, and I can see why oh, they movie. influenced generations of people. Well, what's what's interesting though is that I think people haven't necessarily seen the movie, but that doesn't mean that they aren't being really influenced by it. Um, so that's those, that's kind of what immediately comes to mind. Those three things. I think that we seriously overlook and underappreciate Rosemary Buckland. We talk a lot about Ray. Nobody ever talks about Rosemary. Um, but the Gardnerian tradition is matrilineal. Like, you can't, you can't not talk about Rosemary. So that's a major oversight to me. Who would you, who would you put on your list? Do you ever, like, when, well, when I think of, like, influential American occultists, I begin with Murray Laveau. Like, to me, Marie Laveau is the American figure of someone who practices magic. You know, she is, she was a real person. We know that she was a real person. 
We don't have a ton of records detailing her life. And a lot of the things that we think we know about her are apocryphal. So she's like Paul Bunyan or, or, um, of, or John Henry in a lot of ways. You know, she's like a figure of mythology. But when people think about magical practitioners in the United States, the first thought, I think, is Marie Laveau. And I think that's awesome. I'm also kind of a devotee of Marie Laveau in my own weird way because I think she's that important. Like, if you think, oh, I'm going to do magic, you might think of Marie Laveau. Yeah, I buy that. Definitely. Yeah. Um, um, I mean, well, she, she shows I, up and go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, during her lifetime, she probably identified as a Catholic almost exclusively. But, you know, but I'm very comfortable saying that I think that she did magic. I think that the uh, historical record says that she did. I'm thinking about, too, her portrayals and in, in pop media, especially the horror genre. Yeah, absolutely. And that might, might that might say something about how ubiquitous she is that I didn't even think about it. Yeah. Now, the other is I, I think of Pascal Beverly Randolph from the uh, mid-1800s. I think he died in like 1870 or something. But he was kind of the architect of modern sex magic and wrote a lot about it. And the people who found it at the OTO stole a lot of his writings and used it as their basis for their organization. And then later, Aleister Crowley utilized a lot of that writing. And he's kind of someone who is forgotten about and not talked about. Yeah. Um, I think, too, we have to, when we talk about magic, you know, I, I told you earlier that I, I just finished reading To Ride a Silver Broomstick, and um, Silver Ravenwolf does this thing in this book. She's got, like, a whole chapter about magic, one of her first chapters about magic in that book, where she opens by talking about subliminal tapes and how great they are and how you should go out and like, you know, find tapes with subliminal messages to like improve your life. And she makes this argument and I still see this in books in particularly from folks who are influenced by Silver Ravenwolf, this assertion that, oh, look, here are instances where people are using witchcraft and they don't even realize it. Tee hee, magic is everywhere. And it's fascinating because, like, that's the conclusion folks were, read, were reaching in the 90s and into the early 2000s, that, like, the self-help movement and therapy and all this stuff, oh, they're really using these techniques from witchcraft. Well, no. Like, American witches are adopting those techniques from those other movements, especially things like New Thought, um, the Human oh Potential God. Movement, right? Yeah, so, like, There's we like can't, an hour we can't we can talk, talk about talk magic. About yeah. Yeah, we can't talk about magic without talking about new thought um, and human potential and a lot of these things that come out of magical traditions or magical traditions in and of themselves that subsequently inspire not just witchcraft, but, you know, occultism as a whole. Um, another, another good example of this is chiropractic, right? Like chiropractic is a, is a religious movement originally, and now, like... Right, like, like chiropractic is not acknowledged by the American Medical Association. We're all just still like, oh, yeah, I go to a chiropractor. That's fine. There's nothing boo about that at all. I'm like, it's really fucking woo. <laughs> like, um, but it's become kind of part of the fabric of what we think of as, as normal, so we don't think of it as magic. Um, I mean, my boss, we had this meeting last week where 
you know, our Zoom meeting. And uh, she put up a whole bunch of thumbnails of different things like um, a blooming flower, a ladybug on a leaf, lightning striking a tree, right? A desert scene, whatever. Like she put up all these thumbnails and then we had to go around the room and we had to talk about which three images resonated the most with us and what did that say about us, right? And she thought that this was like, Great team development, ice breaking, totally work, you know, like work appropriate, whatever, whatever. And I'm sitting there thinking, this is like the wooest shit ever. Like, what kind of like feelingsy, like, <laughs> but to her, pulling directly out of these human potential movement, like, you know, believe it and you'll become it kind of attitudes that come from magical communities. This isn't like secularism that she's doing. <laughs> Um, and that stuff bleeds into, into witchcraft and into magical practice in the United States broadly. Um, but we, we aren't aware of it. A couple of years ago, I had like a friend of mine give me this giant oversized edition of The Secret Teachings of All Ages by Manly P. Yeah. Hall. And Manly asked P. Hall. Me what I thought of, yeah, and asked me what I thought about it. Like, you know, it was like the revelation of these great secrets. And I'm like, well... A lot of occult knowledge distilled into this one book. It's really not all that unique or, uh, I don't know. I mean, it really was like a rehash of a lot of things. Uh, but the first time people see this tends to be in books like that. And they've had a big impact on witchcraft, whether or not they identified as witches or whether or not we're re- actually reading them in 2020 or whatever. Yeah. Well, I think another good example of that is the Cabalion. Oh right? My like God, this thing yeah. is written, right? It's written in the early 20th century and like it's not a hermetic text, right? Like it it's pretty it pretty clearly comes out of new thought, but it serves as a gateway that I think becomes really useful. Like I think the Cabalion is a really valuable text, you know, not necessarily for the reasons people think it is, but it it directs people because obviously like these ideas are older and they've been like rehashed in particular ways, but here they are distilled in this short digestible, you know, like well-circulated text that people can relate to. And those principles, whether or not they're articulated exactly like that, they're really important in, in modern magic, particularly in the United States. And we don't always realize that, that's where they're coming from or, you know, and people who really get invested can start with a cabalion and then they can go, Oh wait, not super duper hermetic. Let me read this other stuff. And next thing you know, you're in the OTO. That's just me. (laughs) I had a friend not too long ago, like she figured out where it came from and was like just Mm -hmm. devastated that it wasn't an ancient text. And I'm like, yeah, this is from like what the 1930s, 1920s. And, uh, like, the, the sadness, like, but that's one of the things I think we have problems with. Wisdom does not have to necessarily be thousands or hundreds of years old. We can discover it, you know, in just a year ago, and it's still valid. It, it oh, feels yeah. like well, I think age is validation in some ways. Yes, I think that's especially true in American religion as a whole. You know, we're being, it's the fourth, right? We're talking about patriotism or something. That's not a word we used. (laughs) Um, American religion in particular is really good about being like, no, it's really old, I swear. 
Like, I just had these tablets. I can't show them to you now, but I swear they're legit. <laughs> like, all of our religions do that. Like, we have this knack for, for, for like, taking something from wherever we got it and then kind of, like, kicking it up to the next extreme in the United States. Um, whether we're talking about, like, variations on Christianity or witchcraft or whatever, like, Americans always take the thing one step too far. <laughs> and one of the things we're obsessed with is being really old and how things are better if they're older. And I think a lot of that is our insecurity because as a nation, we're so young and we're so displaced. I mean, I think most Americans, like, where the hell do we came? Like, I don't know where the fuck my family comes from, you know? Um, plus, we have this whole history of slavery. We've got, you know, millions of people who, have, who don't know where they came from. Um, and I think a lot of those anxieties manifest in our religions, um, we need things to be old and we need to have lineage and we need to know where they came from because that's how we know they're real. And that just doesn't get us very far most of the time. Unless you're a Mormon. And then it goes all the way back to the ancient mm-hmm. Jews who came up to North America and South America and whatever else. Uh, so I saw a bumper yeah. sticker on a car at one point that had, it was like a, a timeline and it had like, um, the you know like Catholicism and Protestantism, and then there was another dot like way the fuck to the left that was Orthodox Christianity. And the line on the bumper sticker said something like, you know, don't you want to pursue the original or something like that? The implication being like, why would you even look at anything else other than like this Orthodox path because it's the oldest. Clearly, it's the best. And like that's just this is a ridiculous argument. So, I think we should be excited when, when things are new. Of course. Um, so when we started this, I was like, what are the most important American occultists? And then I asked, then my next question was going to be most important American witches, which you kind of answered already because you like jumped to Theos and Phoenix and Ed Fitch. And I'm with you. Ed Fitch is like an unsung hero when it comes to like modern American paganism. The whole outer court structure, which was a lot of people's first introduction to anything that's pagan or witchcraft adjacent, all came from Ed Fitch. I think we have to talk about Silver Ravenwolf, too. I know that makes a lot of folks uncomfortable, but you you cannot deny the influence that she had, though. A lot of us running around today are here one way or the other because of her books. And even people who say that they hate her still unknowingly pull things from her text, even if they don't realize that that's what they're doing. I'm with you. Um, I, I mean, totally agree. I mean, yeah, still, I mean Raven honestly, I think on Gen X and the millennials is unparalleled. Yeah. I don't think there's anyone well, who has bigger influence. And I have, I have feelings here too that I'll, I'll say on your show. Um, you, you know, I, I feel this way, but <laughs> I think a lot of the hatred that gets flung at Silver Ravenwolf is, is rooted in misogyny functionally um, because what you'll see is people will say things like, you know, oh, Silver Ravenwolf is garbage because, you know, her history is terrible, cultural appropriation, and like the litany of things that are wrong. But at the end of that, they'll say, you have to read Ray Buckland as though he doesn't do the exact same fucking thing or Scott Cunningham or Raven Gramasi or Christopher Penzak or any of these other authors who were awesome. But like, if you're reading their books in 2001, they're doing the same thing. 
but Silver Ravenwolf is the one that we shit on, and I think it's because she's a woman, Jason. I'm not. I don't think it's. A, I don't think it's. A, I don't think it's a coincidence that if you look at the books that people are pointing to in traditional witch communities and occultist communities, if you look at some of the fancier occult press, what the expensive books are, what the coveted books are, they're by men. I don't like. I don't think that that's a coincidence. I cannot disagree. I think you're absolutely right. I used to wonder, like, what is the reason that people hate Silver Ravenwolf so much? And I think To Ride a Silver Broomstick is a fucking fantastic book. And when I compare it to the other books of the late 80s, early 90s, I think it's far superior in every way. The difference is, is that well, she's a woman, right? Well, and you'll you'll get a kick out of this, right? And this 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 throws my misogyny theory under the bus, but I think these things are still related. Um, so here's all of the critiques of Silver Ravenwolf, and a lot of these critiques are being circulated on TikTok and Instagram by younger people who, by and large, haven't read Silver Ravenwolf. Um, but as as I think you're probably aware, um, a lot of DJ Conway's books are being re-released right now. They're being repackaged, and and they're very popular right now. I see them all the time on TikTok. And I see them amongst people who are critical of Silver Ravenwolf. And you've read DJ Conway. DJ Conway is the fucking worst. Terrible. But she's, she's up there, though, now. She's, she's amongst books being circulated right now. Right? Gabby Herstick wrote the foreword to Elemental Magic, the new edition that just came out. Right? And Gabby Herstick has a massive following amongst these young folks. Right. So there's DJ Conway all of a sudden. And like, I'm sorry. Like, does does anybody remember Norse magic and Celtic magic? <laughs> like, like what? Um, I think that Silver Ravenwolf got shit on largely because she was a woman. Those stories got circulated. And now like all that stuff gets thrown away. And we totally overlook it when other authors do it. Well, I mean, DJ Conway could be a man or a woman, right? DJ Conway was a woman. I know she oh, was. Oh, you mean from the perspective of a buyer? Right. It's very Maybe. ambiguous. Um, but yeah, I think I think there's I'll, a I'll lot of. I'll never quite. Latent, I mean, I'll admit that I was probably guilty of like I hate Silver Ravenwolf because she's successful in the late '90s. Uh, but when I went back and like reread her material, it's I think it's better than most of the other stuff from that era. And if I had to, like, recommend a 101 text to people, I recommend to write a silver broomstick. I don't reckon, I don't have any of them that I like. I feel bad about that. I agree with you, with you that I think her work holds up better, um, but I still don't have a beginner book that I like. And I think that's, that just means that we, we do, in fact, need as many beginner books as we, as we don't think we do. Because um, I, don't, I don't have one. Like, when somebody asks me, you know, hey, I don't know anything. Can you recommend a book? Like, I really can't. Here's like three or four that you can piece it together. It is really tough. I mean, I think what it's we recommend. Really I think what we recommend really has a lot to do with when we were growing up. You yeah, know, it's a generational oh, yeah. thing. Like, people always like to recommend, especially baby boomers. They're always like, "Well, you should read Drawing Down the Moon," and I'm like. Half of those traditions oh my don't God. even exist anymore. Like, why would I, I need to read this book? I mean, it's a second-level book for sure, but it's not a first-level book. No, I that that one definitely doesn't hold up. Um, 
I think I think part of it is that we it's just like in music or like I think the 90s was was the greatest decade for music ever. Um but that's be also because I started listening to music in the 90s and I became passionate about music in the 90s and I remember those bands in my bones, right? And I think that's true for Witches and Wiccans with their first books. One of the things that I see online periodically is, you know, people will ask about you know, getting involved in initiatory Wicca and they want reading lists. And I see not infrequently people will say things like, oh, well, you just have to read Gardner and Valiente, like stick to the classics. That's how I got here. And I'm just like, have you read the classics since, you know, 1975? Like, because they don't hold up. Like, that's not the way to encourage anybody into these movements or answer their questions. But people think that they don't actually have to even read new books. It's really, it's, it's discouraging. It really is. Um, so I had a couple other like American questions. We got off on tangents, so it's fine. Oh, also, I've had a lot of whiskey at this point, which is okay. That's the whole point of the show. Like, what stupid shit can Jason say? There's a lot of podcasts. We can have a drinking game where every time you say um, you have to. I don't about. say um very often. You I'm don't. not an ummer, right? I'm not an ummer. No, you're not. Even drunk, I'm not an ummer. I'm like really proud of that. Like <laughs> my father, like one of the first times I ever like talked about pagan shit in front of an audience, my father was there. And then when we were done, oh, no. he took me out to dinner and he's like, these are the things that you did wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and that conversation like sticks with me. My dad is like a big like supporter of me. He's been very good to me, but like he, he you know, that particular conversation that will never get out of my head. Like everything really that funny. I did wrong, he pointed out and I've been a better public speaker because of it. Oh god. No, I wouldn't do any of this stuff in front of my parents. <laughs> Ask your question, though. All right. So asked about the most important American occultists. We got through that. Most important American witches. I think that you answered that when we were talking about Ed Fitch and Theos and Phoenix. I did. I'm and sorry. I cheated. I no, no. It's all good. And you talked a lot about Silver Ravenwolf, and I'm with you on that one because I think that people like to dismiss her influence on things. Who is the most unsung American witch? Hang on, let me think for a second. That's fine. It might I be can... Rosemary Buckland. Yeah. Do you think I mean... that witchcraft in New York in the late 60s and early 70s was that influential on everything else that happened? I think because that's where a lot of the books were coming. It's not that I think like here's this one tradition and it sort of disperses amongst covens and now that's how witchcraft is. But with Buckland's writing and the way his books circulated, I think that you're being inundated with those things whether or not you want to be. So in that sense, that area and that movement is important. Um, let me think, let me think a little more. You say something and let me let me contemplate my my answer here. My answer would be Ed Fitch, but you went over that earlier. The whole idea of like kind of a general paganism that anybody could participate in really comes from Ed Fitch in the late 1960s 
who proposed yes. the idea of the outer court, which is a big deal for Gardnerian Wiccans. How can I get someone to come to my ritual who is not an initiate? And Ed Fitch came up with that. He wrote a series of rituals that then were shared over the next couple of decades. Um, eventually, they were sort of replaced by books. But I think Ed Fitch is really this sort of unsung pioneer in American witchcraft and even in British witchcraft yeah. because I think it like, you know, percolated across the pond, so to speak, and was picked up by our cousins over there. Uh, I really think he's overlooked when it comes to things. You know, he wrote a couple of books. There's the uh, Grimoire of Shadows, I think, which really mm-hmm. was his outer court book of shadows, which was finally published in the 90s by Llewellyn. And then there was Magical Rites from the Crystal Well, which were a series of open rituals that he published in a zine called Crystal Well, which again, I think, I think they were first published in the 80s or late 70s. And if you read the rituals from those periodicals, they're not particularly good. I think we've gotten much better at writing rituals over the last 20, 30 years, but they were really important because they were an entryway for a lot of people in an era when there wasn't a lot of entryways. So other than Ed yeah, Fitch, other than Ed Fitch, and I, I think I gave you plenty of time to think, most unsung well, American witch. <laughs> I don't know that there is. Can I? Let, okay. okay. <laughs> I want to, I want to say something broad. Um, because I'm I'm having trouble because I, I agree with you I think I think Ed Fitch is a great choice I think that's why I I went for his name um, initially when you were asking about American witches um, so I had this I had this moment upstairs in my my occult magical library um, I don't rem- I, some, do you ever just sometimes get crazed and you stand in front of your bookshelf and you're just like what do I need right now of course I had I had this moment. Um, and I was thinking about theology and theological perspectives, particularly in Wicca. And we've been around now for, I mean, we're not far. I mean, we're a score away from 100 years, roughly, like if I'm being generous. Um, and we don't have good or even really a lot of bad attempts at, like, theological wrestlings in witchcraft. We've got a lot of how-to things. We've got a lot of, like, collections of spells. We've got a lot of whatever. But we we have very, very few writers who are actually tackling things, dare I say, seriously. Um, and I think that's that's kind of what people are getting at when they complain that, they, that there aren't advanced books. Um, I mean, that by itself is, is a whole other conversation. Um, you can read a whole chapter about that in my next book. Um, but I think one of the reasons why people pine for more, you know, more, capital M, more, is because that's, that's a thing that feels like we're fundamentally lacking. So I'm wandering around my shelves, and um, I picked up Philosophy of Wicca by Amberlane Fisher. Do you know this book? I do not know that book. You probably don't even know this book. It was printed by ECW, and like I don't, I don't have any other books on this press. I don't know anything about this press. But uh-huh. I bought 
Amberlane Fisher's philosophy of Wicca when I was a freshman in college. It was probably 2001 or so. And I haven't, I haven't read it in a long time. Um, I reread it maybe 10 years ago. And I remember thinking that it didn't hold up very well. But when I read it as a 19 year old or whatever, I was totally blown away because here was this lengthy book that really strove to be in-depth looking at things like ethics and the nature of the gods and good and evil as concepts and how this applies in witchcraft and like what does the weed actually mean, et cetera. And I don't agree with a lot of the points that Amberlene Fisher makes at this point, but I do really respect that at the time she's really the only person out there doing that. And her book, if you look it up, like she's, she got shit on for it. Okay. And I don't even know if the book is in print anymore. This idea that um, the, the threefold law is about like, you know, um, something coming back to you physically and spiritually and whatever, like a lot of that comes from her writing. Um, and she makes me long for more texts like that. So I'd like to just generally maybe say that here's this unsung category because there are books. Like I went through my, and you, you haven't seen my library, but there's, I don't know probably a couple thousand titles. Like, I don't fucking I've know. I've seen pictures um, of your library. That's close. Yeah, it's, so it's, it's, it's very extensive. And I, I have a lot of things that are self-published or, like, specially published or whatever. So I've got unusual things. And I have very few books, like single-digit books, that are specifically about theology and witchcraft. Um, and I don't know if that's because our community doesn't care or because they don't know how to engage theologically. Like, I don't know. Um, but I think that Amberlane Fisher was trying to do something really important, and I wish that somebody would pick up where she left off. The only Maybe book... I can get super drunk and send a proposal to Llewellyn and have them turn me down. <laughs> oh. That's how I'll get out of my contract. <laughs> please, please let me know when you do that. I'll be right there. The only other book that I can think of that's kind of like theology was Gus Dezerga's Christians and yes. Pagans. Yeah, because yeah, that felt like a book about theology and, to me. Well, and he has, he's got a book that came out recently um, about gods. Um, so, like, yes, I think Gus Zerga is one of the writers. He, he, he came up in my single-digit list. Um, there just there isn't a lot of that. Um, yes, Christians and – I read that the same year that I read Amberlynn Fisher. But I think books like that don't sell, so they don't get printed. Um, another one – Hang on, I knew I was going to get the author wrong, so I ran upstairs, and now I'm looking for it. Uh, it was called Wiccan Mystic. I want to say that it was self-published, I don't um, but it tried to do the same kind of thing. Oh, here you go. Wiccan Mystic. Um, I'm going to say this wrong. Ben Grugach, um, Exploring a Magical Spiritual Path. And he tried to get in-depth about some things, too. Um, Catherine McMorgan. Wicca 333 and all one Wicca. I think she's trying to get to be up to the same sorts of things. But I think ideas like this aren't broadly appealing, so they don't sell. So books like this don't get to exist. Well, I you think know, everybody some, just wants to sell books. <laughs> well, I think that's something some people miss. I mean, publishers like Wiser and Llewellyn are going to print things that sell. 
people always talk about, oh, I want a level 202 or 303 book, but if nobody buys it, they're not going to keep it in print or publish it to begin with. Oh, man. Well, do you remember, do you remember Citadel Press? Yes, um, I remember Citadel. Citadel. Dude, Citadel, well, Citadel published um, Lilith Dorothy's Voodoo and Afro-Caribbean Paganism. Right. Citadel had some amazing titles, and they went under. And, man, we lost some good shit when they went under. Um, I just – I'm a little out of breath because like, I've been running up and down the stairs to look at my library. Like, you'll say something, and I'll be like, I have to go back upstairs. <laughs> um, but they had one book that was entirely – it was called um, Science of the Craft, and it was all about trying to rationalize, you know, scientific principles with witchcraft. A book like that would never sell. Like, that wouldn't sell now. <laughs> Um, they had uh, the second circle, um, which was specifically about advanced paganism. Um, they had a bunch of, there was a whole book entirely about how to practice Wicca as a college student. Um, it was called Rocking the Goddess by Anthony Page. They had tons and tons of good shit. And when they went under, we lost so much. But, you know, like, if you don't buy it, then it's not going to stay in print and these people go under. So what do you want? We say we want advanced books, but we don't spend money on them. So they were an there you go. Penguin Random House. Mm-hmm. They were an imprint of Pagan, of Penguin, not Pagan, Penguin Random House. I mean, they weren't like uh, independent, like publisher. No. They were like linked Mm-mm. to a big thing. And apparently right, we let them down. Enough. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, I'm over here kind of skimming my shelf, but man, the early 2000s were great for pagan publishing. They were great, and I think I think we just kind of collectively dropped the ball because we we care. And I, you know, like I I toss myself in here too. Like I'm part of this community. We we care about specific things and we harp on them. And when people say different things, like we don't generally like to listen. Um, so. You know, I think that's why we see the same things over and over again. I was cruising around Amazon yesterday, <laughs> seeing how many copies of traditional Wicca Seeker's Guide hadn't sold that week. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ever do um, that. I mean, well, you know, it was kind of an off week. Um, but I could not tell you, like, how many books were coming out. What is that press? Is it Rockpool? I, yes, I have it to is. think about it. It's um, They have got, and not just witch books, but specifically Wicca books, like Wicca 101. They had like three coming out in August. Um, like we just, and I mean, I just said 20 minutes ago that we need beginner's books because I hate all of them, so I want more. But like there's a market for those things, whereas there isn't a market for, you know, like my deep late night ramblings about the nature of God from a witch's perspective. Like that book isn't going to sell. So as we like kind of come near the end and because of like earlier snafus, we've been talking for quite a while and I've, I've had like a lot of whiskey in me. So who is the most overrated American witch writer and who is the most undervalued Oh, overrated and undervalued. It's tough, okay. isn't it? I have no um, ideas, but... I, 
Oh, yeah. Well, and maybe, you know what? Like, I think Ray Buckland is overrated. Um, Obviously, look, I I wasn't around in the 70s, okay? Like, I'm sure, you know, like, everybody has to be appreciated in their moment. But I am kind of bewildered why his books circulate as well as they do today. Um, Like, I don't... I think, again, we're seeing, like, reputations held over from prior generations and folks recommending the same books over and over again because that's what they were brought in. And I think that people tend to not read new books. I think our, our elders, our community leaders, were still, like, they're recommending the same things. And I just don't think a 14-year-old exploring Wicca for the first time needs the big blue book. I don't think it's good anymore. <laughs> like, have you read the Chantomatic book lately? Like, it's not good. <laughs> oh, I hated his, like, practical candle burning rituals when it came out, when I bought it. I mean, they were not practical yeah. in any way. It was like, no. buy 97 of, candles, and then you can do candle magic. Yeah, and then forge your own Asane. And, like, come on. I mean, and, and we're seriously, like, recommending these books to teenagers. Like, why are we doing that? There's a million other books to choose from. There's, like, 12 coming out on Rockpool next month. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think, I think at this point, you know, obviously, like, we have to appreciate his position historically. Like, I don't think that that can necessarily be overemphasized. But that by itself is not his books. So Buckland is the first person who comes to mind. Um, I mean, I put I put Scott Cunningham too. Cunningham would be my second choice, I think. Yeah, I put put Cunningham there too again. Well, and like this is somebody who like owes a massive debt to Scott Cunningham, okay? But it's 2020, and some of these things in those books just cannot be espousing anymore. We just can't. (laughs) Like there are more comprehensive guides to herbal magic, first of all. (laughs) Like. But the intro to Wicca books just aren't good. They just aren't. So we've got other choices now. We should use them. No, they're... Uh, what was the second part of your question? Wow. It's like you did such a great job and, like, spoke for me. Most overrated. No, it was uh, most influential and most overrated. Didn't and I then most overrated? undervalued. Most undervalued. That's it. Who's the most undervalued? Like who's had a Didn't big I just do that when I <laughs> Who's oh. had a big impact that nobody knows they've had a big impact? <laughs> For the bulk. I already talked about her. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm not really kidding. Um, no, I don't think you're wrong in a lot of ways. I really don't. Um See, this is me making the placeholder noise that lets you know that I'm I'm going to speak eventually. Saying, um, it's fine. I mean, I can think of a lot of overrated witches though that I can like throw out there yeah, while you you're throw waiting. Yeah, your overrated ones. I mean, I'm think more about also pagans as a general rule. I mean, I think I've had really great experiences with Oberon sale, and don't take this the wrong way, but I think that Oberon is probably a little overrated. I don't think the green egg was as widely read as some people think it probably was in the 70s and the 90s. Yeah. And when I go to a pagan Mm. festival, 
you know, there are still people who are like, oh, Oberon. I mean, and I get it. You know, maybe it's professional jealousy. I don't know. But, you know, it just, I, don't, I mean, I think he's influential. Don't get me wrong. I put it in my 25 list, but it's probably not as much as some people think it is. I would also think that yeah. we probably undervalue people who are not related to the witch movement in some ways, like Anton LaVey. Oh, yeah, and, sure. Yeah, and I'm not, like, saying you should go out and read the Satanic Bible. That's not it at all. But, like, if you were growing you up in the, the Satanic Bible, eh, it's, it's, it's garbage. I mean, there's not much that's it's useful. A piece of, it's a piece Bible. of history. What it you is, really need to a, read is the Satanic Witch. That book is much better. Which one? The Satanic Witch. Oh, yeah, the Satanic Witch is better. Oh, that's It actually great. has words in it. Well, it teaches you how to ensnare a man. <laughs> Every girl's dream. Oh, now I know how Ari did what she did. That's good to know. But, I mean, like... You're probably an easy like, target. People like Anton LaVey that, like, kind of opened the door for people doing magic and said, you can do this. And then they probably gave up on Satanism later. So I feel like I've given you like a good two minutes of time to think without umming. I don't, I don't know. I mean, so you, you said Anton LaVey that made me think about Hans Holzer. <gasps> Hans um, Holzer. <laughs> yeah. Cause I'm thinking about, well, I'm thinking about the first books I read that got me like magic curious. And a lot of them were those kind of like, sensationalist witches amongst us kind of pulpy books oh, like lots sure. of pictures and a lot of those are by Holzer um, so he comes to mind I mean at least, at least you know, generationally I think there's definitely a factor like that that's definitely worth considering well I think that the ease of like being able to go out and get a book by Hans Holzer through the 70s 80s and into the 90s is underappreciated the same for Sybil League. I mean, there were so yeah. many copies of those books in print. And not to, no, like, yeah, not to piss all over Gavin and Yvonne Frost, but they always talked about how many copies their witch's Bible sold in the 70s. And when you try to buy that used, it's like $100 because it didn't sell that many what? copies in the yeah. 70s. Man, I, yeah. haven't, I haven't looked at it in a while. Yeah. Um, but like I have a... I have an advanced copy of that. Of which one? Um, um, I want to say it's their their like white magic guide. I'm sitting here looking at my shelf. Yeah. Um, their original first uh, couple of printings of, of their witch's Bible is very expensive and very hard to come across. Trust me, because I know, because I've looked. I believe you. I believe you. Yeah. But I mean, a lot of the Civil League stuff until relatively recently was cheap to get used. I mean, it was a couple of dollars. A lot of the Hans Holzer oh, yeah. stuff is still a couple of dollars, which meant that you could go to your local library and find it there waiting for you. Or you could go to a garage sale or a flea market and it was readily available. Yeah, you can find Holzer. I mean, like, I, I can pretty much always count on finding him at used bookstores. Um, whereas, like, yeah. I was on eBay just, like, last week tracking down a copy of Sybil Leek's, um her herb book. Um, like, 
a lot of her shit is surprisingly difficult to get. And even her Diary of a Witch, like I remember getting that on eBay when I was basically a kid. And now the book has gone for like a hundred bucks. Like the cheapest ones I could find were in that range. And I know I didn't spend anything like that in, you know, 2000 or whenever the hell I got mine. Apparently Christopher Penzag still recommends them for beginner witches, which is probably why they're so expensive. So he's like encouraging people to find them, which like raises the price. Something that's funny to me about Christopher Penzag you know, I adore, um, but just talking like broadly about book culture. So like Inner Temple of Witchcraft has to be like one of Llewellyn's best-selling books ever, right? Like I hear he has like a shrine in the Llewellyn office somewhere because of how well his books sell. And I know that they're, they're going to release new editions of them. Um, Are you doing one of the introductions? I can neither confirm nor deny that. <laughs> um but what's interesting to me about Inner Temple specifically, so there's there's six books in the series. Um, and I know that like a seventh one existed at one point. There might be a seventh one in the future. I don't know. Um, but like Inner Temple of Witchcraft is everywhere. But having read it really thoroughly and having done the corresponding like training course through the Temple of Witchcraft with this book, I think that a lot of people haven't actually read it. Like, some of the stuff that's in there, and as thorough as it is, like, I believe that it's on most people's bookshelves, but I don't think people read it the way it was intended to be read, you know, just because, like, if you are following his instructions, you're doing stuff like that. You're reading Sybil Leak, and you're spending tons of time in meditation, and, you know, building, like, it's literally about building a temple on the astral, okay? And, like, this book is everywhere, but I think people, it's one thing to buy a book, it's another thing to read it, and it's another thing altogether to read it as the author intended. And I think most people don't do all of those things. Um, it's interesting. I, I want to do like ethnographic work with this book at the center of it. I think as the author intended is a big thing because I read books and they're like, did you go back to your journal and write about this and write about that? In my 20 plus years of doing witchcraft, I have never fucking kept a journal while I read a book. It just is not something that I do. And there always seems to be these add-ons that a lot of authors expect you to do, and I just don't think most people do them. I think most people don't do them either. And the first time I read Inner Temple, and this is really true about a lot of witchcraft books, I didn't do them either. You read the book, it takes a couple of weeks, maybe you jot a couple of things down, but by and large, you read it, you buy the next book in the series and you move on and you pay no mind to the fact that like, Oh no, this book is designed to be worked through over the course of a full year. And if you actually are doing that, there's something, there's something I think transformative that happens to you. Um, And I think that's what a lot of these authors are hoping for. They want you to have that experience. They're writing to you as though this is going to be your only book about witchcraft, even though we all know it's not. Um, So, the next time I went through it, though, I did it as part of this course, and it, it's a completely different book if you do it that way. Um, and it kind of bewilders me from that perspective that people think of it as an intro book just because of how much work is involved in going through it if you do it the way Penzac intends. It's fascinating. The book I'm writing right now, um, it's called Next Level Witchcraft, tentatively. It's, I kind of hate that title, but I feel <laughs> I feel like it'll sell books, which is, like, gross, but 
what have you, this is a business. Um, and it has exercises in it. And the teacher in me knows full well that people aren't going to do them. But also the teacher in me, you know, like who deals with 17 and 18-year-olds and is kind of petty sometimes with them, says, well, that's too bad for you if you don't do them. Like, no wonder you're stuck where you are. Or no, no wonder you haven't gotten past certain points. Because, like, are you really trying? Are you? Um, it's, and it's been a good exercise to, to write and think about and try to make these things accessible and have them, you know, be meaningful. A lot of words, Jason. When you talk, when we talk about, it's fine. It's witches, whiskey, and wit. I mean, that means you've been drinking during the show. And I know. Like, I know. It's like starting. Like I sort of heat up as I talk, and then I'm just like, why is it 90 degrees in my room right now? But we talk about oh, underappreciated witches. I think Christopher Penzak is one of those. I mean, I think he's because he's still so relatively young. I mean, he's the first Gen X witch to have any sort of influence in a major way. And I think he's overlooked. Think he's undervalued? Yeah, I think he's undervalued because of that. I'm think. okay, so here, here's what I noticed, because I don't, I don't disagree with you, but I think this might be generational too. I find that he gets a lot more love from young people than he does from older readers. I oh, think that sure. he gets undervalued and overlooked amongst millennials, Gen Xers, boomers, but his books are all over Instagram and they're all like they're on social media. Um, you know, like I've seen them on TikTok, a lesser extent than Instagram. Um, so I think that he's going to be one of those influential powerhouses but I think a lot of folks from you know our age and up maybe can't appreciate that now I realized it like like 10 years ago like we'd both just been at Pantheacon and then Mm -hmm. the weekend after Pantheacon is convocation in Detroit and Mm -hmm. I you know I was there and I was fucking exhausted because in you know just like two or three days after pecan, and there was Christopher like talking to two or three people, and the people were like looking at him and with such intent, you know like everything he says is like from the mouth of the goddess, you know it was I was exhausted for him for having to deal with that, but I mean I realized pretty early on that he was a very big deal, and it felt like especially boomers, were really sort of overlooking that. Something else that's really interesting to me about Penzac that I think is also unusual in our community, even if I think maybe people will disagree with me that it's unusual, I, I, I think it is. Christopher Penzac's writing, and if you've ever seen Christopher Penzac run a ritual or teach a workshop, Christopher Penzac's style is... Um, it's kind of revelatory. Like he is revealing sacred text to people. He is, a lot of his work is UPG. A lot of it is direct from his gods, his guides, his guardians. Like his, he reminds me of a theosophist. Like I see those influences in him. And I think it's very unusual to see which books 
Um, I think like Peter Gray is an exception. Chumley is an exception. Like we've got exceptions for sure. People talking about their personal noses, you know, as inherent kind of truth. But Penzac does that too. Um, I think he's just so good at it that it works well with what other people are up to. So it's, it's, I mean, it makes sense and it's acceptable to incorporate into our own practices and, we don't necessarily ask Christopher Penzak, like, oh, where did this thing come from? You know, and he might straight up tell you, like, it came to him in a vision or it came from an angel or it came from whenever. And, like, there are lots of other people we would think were nuts for doing that, but, like, Christopher Penzak is just, he's such an eloquent speaker and he's got such a presence to him that he can do those things in public. Whereas, like, if I did it, <laughs> you know, like, I don't think that would work. It's, it's I, really like, interesting. I, like, owe my entire, like, career to Christopher Penzak, and I'm, like, a huge fan because of that. Like, he's like, you should write for Llewellyn one day after watching a Horn God workshop, and they rejected that Aww. book at the time, but it did, like, light a spark, you know, and he's just such a good and gracious person. I mean, I, I feel like his influence will be felt more and more over the next couple of years and decades. Uh, to me, you know, he's probably going to be in that like top 25 list because he really has influenced generations and he has been good and kind to people who are his peers. Yes, I tell people that they shouldn't have heroes and they definitely shouldn't have pagan authors as heroes, but Christopher Penzak is one of my last remaining pagan author heroes. Um, I've lost no. a lot of them, especially in recent years. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. I think that's that is going to be one of those. Um, he's, I think he's one of the, and you know, people will cringe at this. You know, I just ask that you keep in mind my my religious studies background and my my, my ethnographic work with Christian groups. I think some of what Christopher Penzak is doing is functioning in a prophet role in our community. Um, he espouses wisdom and it's, it's everywhere. And I think it's a lot of people owe a lot to him. Um, I mean, I'm thinking about Matt Oren right now, you know, who's a friend of both of ours. And obviously he's got an enormously popular book right now, Psychic Witch. Um, and a lot of Matt's training, you know, comes from, comes from Penzac and, you know, comes through Cabot and like, watching Matt's book take off is also like watching Christopher's ideas take off too. Like that's the next generation. Um, and I think we're going to see more of that in the coming decades. And it speaks well of Christopher because he is somebody who is a mentor to younger generations. And he also wants to bring people up. One of the things I've loved about the witchcraft author community is it's not a contest. It doesn't feel like we're in competition with each other. For the most part, most authors are really encouraging of other authors. Yes. Yeah, and I've I've received a lot of a lot of support and encouragement from Christopher too. Um, it was I don't I don't know what I was expecting, but it was quite startling. Like initially, you know, I told you, but like my whole life is just being awkward at my heroes when I meet <laughs> them for the first time. Um, but <laughs> I. <laughs> I just, I need help. <laughs> I didn't have any siblings growing up. Nobody played board games with me. I'm just, this is who I am now. 
Um, but, uh, yeah, he, he, um, reached out to me about speaking at Temple Fest, you know, this is before COVID hit and like, man, like that just felt a lot more significant than some of the other requests I've gotten to speak because of the weight that I put on Christopher, whether or not that's fair, you know, I do So like that felt like a big deal. Um, Yeah. I did not think that we would end the show with like 20 minutes of C-Pen appreciation, but I do love Christopher. I love C-Pen. I do. The Horn God book like has a little paragraph for him that he probably doesn't even remember. I mean, I just, he uh, has an influence I don't think he realizes. And when we talk about influential, influential witches, I think it's great that we kind of ended up talking about him. Because he is really overlooked, especially by people older than us. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So, Thorne and I have been talking for quite a while now, which is how these things roll. And we appreciate all of you who have been with us through all of the sort of uh, obstacles that we have encountered tonight. You know, usually the show is over about an hour ago. You, uh, are people just, still listening? Yes, I think they are, which is crazy. Oh, thanks, everybody. <laughs> yeah, Jason has had a lot of whiskey, though, so it's probably about time to go. You know, it's, it is what it is. But we have, like, kind of a little uh, special end uh, to the show tonight. Usually Uh-oh. we don't play a lot of music on the show. We're going to play a lot of music. Before we get to that, though, if people want to know more about Thorn Mooney online, where can they go? What can they do? How can they realize um, that you are as awesome as I think you are? Well, I'm I'm on pretty much all platforms if you search for Thorn the Witch, but my favorite right now is Patreon. I figured out that if I put a $1 paywall in place, I use a sliding scale, so like $1 is all it costs. I can write blogs and post videos and talk about real shit, and people are actually really smart, and I don't have any trolls. So I do a lot of my writing and a lot of my interacting now on Patreon. I think, I think that's where the future of the Internet is heading, is to these sites with membership. Um, so I wanted to keep it really cheap because um, I have a straight job, right? I'm not trying to, like feed myself with Patreon money, but I accidentally built a really cool community. Um, I post my ridiculous like YA fiction and I talk about witchcraft and I share too many feelings and I talk about my personal life and we oh talk about God, real shit. And... <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so find me on Patreon at Thorn the Witch. That's probably the best one. Yeah. She's in lots yeah. of other places, but that's a great place to, to start. I have actually, yeah. you know, hung out with Thorne's Patreons, and it's really fun, which is how I hung out with you for five hours not too long ago. Yeah, we have we have live chats every weekend. That's awesome. Thorne, yeah, thank you for being friends. here. Thank you for, like, like, you know, going through the technical problems that we had. You are, like, one of my favorite people in the whole world. We were supposed to go to the UK yeah, together this so. year. We were supposed you to go to You can come to my second wedding. Yeah. And Ari's like, 
I think we're going to be planning our next UK trip for 2021. So, you know, yeah, it looks like we're barred. But hey, if we're if we're barred from the UK, maybe we can get some refunds. Oh, we'll get some refunds. That's that's what Ari's waiting for. (laughs) Yeah, but But also in California, Matt, no, we'll come in. Oh. You and Matt are always welcome. Maybe we'll get to uh, Salem in October. Who knows? Oh, my God. Wear a mask, people. Let Jason and Thorne hang out together again. The only way that a mask. I know. So sad. It's so tough. <laughs> Thank you all for listening to uh, Witches, Whiskey, and Wit. I've had a lot of whiskey. It just happens sometimes. Tonight's whiskey was brought to you by Templeton Rye. Tonight I was drinking the maple cask finish, which is rye whiskey finished in maple syrup barrels. My wife mocked me for buying this. It's actually really pretty fucking good. It's rye whiskey with just a little hint of sweet. So before we go tonight, we're going to play a song which we normally do not do because we don't do a whole lot of music. Is it Rye Whiskey by Punch Brothers? Because that's uh, what you should play. If we could, like, get the clearance, that's what we would do. I could sing it to you. Oh, uh, we would still need the clearance, which is probably wow. beyond our budget. Uh, Pam, who is, like, one of the sort of people who's in charge of the show, is she here? Oh, my God. So the new S.J. Tucker album is out tomorrow as I write this, as I, you know, do this. And it's supposed to be playing tonight, but the person who's supposed to play it is, like, not here. So I guess we're just going to, like, run away. It just happens, right? Yes. I guess it does. You know, that's the problem with doing shit live. If we did it, like hate delay, nobody would know that we had any problems. But it's not usually how we roll, so I guess it's not gonna happen. I'm like looking at shit to see if uh, it's in here. This is the problem with doing a show where like, we encourage people to drink. Rye whiskey makes the band sound better. Uh-huh. Did you hear that his show was canceled? Like on NPR? Oh, the NPR show? Yeah. I hate like, NPR. That's fine. I was like still, <laughs> yeah, I was like still sad by that because I love like that show. It was the successor to uh, the Garrison Keeler show, but it was, it, oh the music God. was great. So this the song I'm going to play is the, the new S.J. Tucker album. The song is called <laughs> Wild Times. I found it. We're going to roll with that. And uh, thank you all for listening. My guest has been Thorne Mooney. I love Thorne. I'm, like, so happy that you're here. Uh, if you listen live, I'm so sorry about the problems that we had. <laughs> if, you're li- if you're listening later, it's all good. You missed all that shit. So uh, here's that sorry Shay Tucker. Thanks to Thorne. I'll probably, like, make – I'll bring you back at Christmas. That's my favorite holiday. Yule, Christmas. I know. Yeah. We'll get drunk. We'll get drunk and talk again. So, here we go.
time to heal. 